Welcome back to the kitchen table. Uh, again, this is episode one, part two. We're talking about resiliency. Um, our original conversation with Lieutenant Kurtz and Dr. Long ran about two hours, um, so we decided to split it into two parts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, with a, a topic like resiliency, like I mentioned in the past, resiliency, leadership, they're all those so big and there's so many different directions that we can go. Um, I know we had talked about each one of these podcasts being, what, 45 minutes, maybe an hour long each. And when we went through this whole thing and had two hours worth of content and looking at, you know, what do we cut out? I don't think there's anything that we can cut out. I mean, if anything, we could keep adding to this um, to be able to, um, you know, touch on all the different parts that come with resiliency. Two hours wasn't even enough. So I think splitting this up into two, two episodes was the right way to do it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there, there, it, it is a pretty broad topic, um, very open-ended. Um, I think I learned a lot um, just in the discussions, just the two-hour discussions, but I think you're right. It's something that we could expand on even more. We could have two more episodes with two different people uh, talking about resiliency and, and how it affect, how it's affected their lives and some of the obstacles they've had to overcome. So, yeah. um, again, this is part two. Thank you all for listening to us. Um, we know it's a long podcast, but we think it's worth it. So, uh, episode one, part two, and without further ado, back to Brian Kurtz and Dr. Judith Long. And here we go. <laughs> I want to poke a little bit at the word courage. Because a couple of you brought it up. Um, and I want to define the difference between bravery and being courageous. Because to me, bravery is against all odds. You go into a house that's burning. Seems like an untenable situation, but you go in to save a life. That seems brave to me, but not necessarily courageous. Mm -hmm. Courageous would be, I'm having issues, I need help. That's a courageous decision. Yeah. Or a courageous decision is, you know, hey, you look like you're having trouble. How can I help you? Mm -hmm. Now that takes courage. And so to me that you need to have a safe environment in to do that. Right, so that would say for someone to be courageous enough to go see Judith, we need to make that environment safe to do that. We need as a group of people to make that okay. Yeah. okay. So if we want the, the sessions that work on our mind to be just as accepted as going to the gym, then we need it as a group to decide that that's okay. We need to make the environment safe enough that people can have the courage to do those things. Otherwise, it's easier and probably less painful. Well, maybe not easier, but maybe less painful as far as your peer group goes to just not say anything and mm -hmm. then nobody gets the help. And, and yeah. so yeah. am yeah. I way off on no. that? No, or? I, and, I, and I love this conversation. I mean, I've kind of looked at the difference in the two for a little while and, and you know, to, to be brave, I think it's something that you, you've trained to do. You know, there's science behind it, there's information behind it. You're, you have an expected outcome. Like, I think this is gonna happen. I'm going into this building with an expectation. Um, I think we have a lot of brave people on our fire department, you know. All, you know, firefighters, police, military, they're very brave people um, because we're willing to learn how to do something and then use that skill to do something that, that might kill us. Um, the courageous side is, is, I think, something that we, as an industry, as an organization that we really need to work on and focus on. And, and Chief White, you put together the class um, Courageous Conversation years ago. 
and and that's you know and that's it right there to be willing to go up to somebody and have this conversation where you can't really have an expected outcome because you're dealing with human nature not dealing with science in a building and i think it's a really important thing for us to define and accept that yes we're very brave but we need to work on the, the courage side of it and we can be better at that uh, well based on that conversation it sounds like you're saying that uh, courage takes vulnerability absolutely yeah so that's the, the key ingredient agree, yeah. is um, understanding that you may not be everything you need to be right now and you might not be able to figure it out on your own mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so where do you go I think yeah I think courage is is more of a social thing when you have the ability to speak up and you don't that takes away from that courage versus in the firehouse that happens a bunch and I'm guilty of it as well as anybody probably is of like we get a little bit ramped up sometimes and we start getting into each other and whether it's political or religious or just because they're a newer person or because they got a different background or whatever that is we have a conversation that's uncomfortable for one person and that person isn't the one that needs to speak up it needs to be the recognition and the courage of somebody else in there to go hey enough mm -hmm. we're bothering that person or it's bothering me that they feel bad about that that to me is, a, is like the biggest piece of courage that we can bring into this culture is you know I, I remember back when I was a fairly new guy there was an individual on the job that like made my life a living hell like every call we ran with that company I walked in going oh here it comes and I literally just prepared to take a beating all the way from his officer to the firefighters that were with him were like oh here's that Kurtz kid what do you think we should do now tough guy hey mister know-it-all like they were on me mm -hmm. rightfully so probably because of something that I said didn't think about it before I said it and walked off from it at a certain point. But it took courage to stand in the median of academy and go, hey, I don't know why your guys mess with me, but I've had it. I hate coming to work in the morning. I used to love waking up for this job. And I walk onto this job in the morning thinking I'm going to get my butt kicked every day. Every time I run with that company, I'm just going to get destroyed. It took courage for me to walk up and say, we need to end this. Whatever I did, tell me and I'll fix it or I'll prove to you that you were wrong about the impression that I made on you but that took the most courage I think I've ever had on this job and nobody else is sticking up for me I don't know if anybody even ever saw it but man I I literally my wife was like you got to say something and I'm like nope we don't say anything we just come to work we show up I don't have a voice because I'm new and I've since known that that is not okay <laughs> like I've, mm -hmm. I've figured out through my career as we mature and, and like I said I'm, I'm as guilty as the person on the median that was going against me at times that I say yeah did I make an uncomfortable environment for somebody or do I have the courage to say hey let's stop this is uncomfortable let's figure out how they learn let's figure out what makes them better let's let's figure out maybe it's a generational thing that I'm giving them PowerPoint when they need YouTube videos or snapchat or whatever that is like we got to change ourselves a little bit in there and I feel like I feel like that's what takes courage is to find another way not just be the the old salty chief at the you know conference going why do those new guys have to come in with that why can't why can't they learn it our way well because they're like 30 years younger than you man like is it okay for you to learn something new maybe it's not technology that you're good with but that person you can capitalize and put the technology out that gets them the 
target that they need to do their job successfully. It's changed. It's evolved with our time. It's evolved with our culture. But that's the stuff that I think takes courage is telling that person, like, hey, maybe they just don't learn this way. Give me 20 minutes with them. I'll be right back. Yeah. And then you go call the other new person that you had that's the same age and go, what helped you when you were stuck? Is there a place that you went to? Is there a, a, a video series or whatever, whatever makes you learn? Or it might be the other way. We might have a bunch of young officers that are coming into us teaching some 50-year-old guys that just watch PowerPoint and, you know, have a task book that they go through with pen and pencil. And they're trying to teach us on YouTube because we told him to set up a class or her to set up a class. And it doesn't work that way for our brain. Maybe yeah. they have to learn another way as well. So I just think it's being acceptance and having, having the courage to say, hey, we all don't learn the same. I'm a real visual, tactile learner. Like, you can give me a book and I don't learn much out of it. But you present the information to me and you say, all right, let's go do it. I'll get it by the end of the day. You know so. what else? Like on our job, it's cool to be brave, right? <laughs> Is it cool to be courageous? I mean, I don't know. So yeah, I don't think so. I think it depends on who you talk to. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah, I, I feel like you're pretty cool. Well, and I think one of the things that we have to get over ourselves about is the fact that it, to be courageous doesn't mean you're vulnerable and courageous all the time with right. every mm -hmm. person in every situation. Right? It's not like you walk around crying all the time. Right. But the thing is, what is, what is yeah. the stereotype <laughs> so, image so that people think strong. of? Though? Yeah. When you think of vulnerability, you think people are walking around just crying constantly. And it kind of isn't that. Yeah. I think it is, again, here's an intersection of wisdom and vulnerability. It's choosing where is it the appropriate moment to actually be vulnerable. To, to kind of seek out that conversation or, or to admit to oneself, like, hey, yeah. I need some help here. Um, and it's okay, it's okay to need help. So yeah. I feel like we need to, <laughs> I don't know, drop that stereotype of what we think vulnerability means. Because right. to me, vulnerability is strength. There's, there is absolutely no question in my mind yeah. that vulnerability is strength. I get that it's not the same for everyone else, but I think we need to evaluate what does it mean to be vulnerable? And some of those images we have are not accurate reflections of what it means to be vulnerable. Yeah. yeah. I think there are different sides of it, too. You know, when kind of bringing it back to resiliency a little bit, it's like it's, you know, physical or, or mental. Because, I mean, it's one thing if I go say, hey, I'm going to go run 100 miles. And at mile 80, it's like I'm, if as long as I keep putting one foot in front of the other, I'm being resilient. It's a completely different thing to have that emotional response and to be able to work through you know, a vulnerable, you know, conversation or a courageous conversation, mm -hmm. you know, that it can be two, you know, two completely different things that can be a lot different for people. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've kind of touched on it all over the place, but what are some of the tools that people need and have available to them to be resilient? All right, this is going to sound really corny, but each other yeah. <laughs> but seriously That's i mean it is it's a fundamental thing that i think we've covered again and again at least from my perspective what we learn from other people is one of the most important things we can have to teach us how to be resilient if only we're willing to see <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and open our minds a little to what options we have yeah i, I kind of goes to what you've talked about brian about you know the your your last you know few months and the support that you've that you've talked about you know when I hear some of the things that people have done you know I mean I think that that's something that kind of you know what you're talking about Judith is you the people that we're surrounded with really help us build um, 
you know, that, that resiliency that we're looking for is just knowing that we're surrounded by good friends or coworkers or people. Yeah, and even when you, if you don't have a huge pool of resources with friends and coworkers, and even if it's, you know, somebody who's just brand new, the, the world takes over. Like, it, it, there's people I don't even know recognizing a huge problem in my world that have gone to great lengths to take a moment to make my day better. People I've never met that heard of us through some other way or, you know, it's just, it's amazing to me that people, that's courage when you're like, I don't know you, I've heard about this person that you've lost and I wanna help you. I don't know how, but maybe this will help. Here's my phone number, here's my address. You know, there's a, a when, when my wife was in the hospital, a guy that I didn't even know, I'm sitting with a friend having a beer, telling him, hey, this is what's going on, and we got this treatment coming up, and this and that. This dude's like, hey man, I live three blocks away in your RV. It'll fit behind my house, so if you want a place close to the hospital to stay, just come park at my side yard. Didn't even know the guy. And I'm like, man, that would make my life, because I had a 30 minute drive back and forth every single drive. And I'm like, this dude I don't even know is like, hey, I'll run a court out there. He left a six-pack of beer every day for me. It was awesome. Like, that, a person I never met in my life. Like, I've never mm -hmm. met him until that minute. But just, like, leaning on our society mm -hmm. and being that person in our society. And we're that every day. We're, we're, it's the customer service that we've been giving since we got into whatever we were doing back when I was 14 and building decks. The customer service was, oh, yeah, I know I picked up the lumber, the little mess that we made, but I also kind of straightened up your wood pile. Like, that was the extra that I got taught from a young age that I still now do like like do that extra for people like it makes you feel good and if you're in my seat when somebody offers that extra just be there just just say yes just you know a, a very wise woman who lost her son in 9-11 told me a couple weeks ago she said if somebody invites you to dinner by God you better go I don't care when it is or where it is you go to their house for dinner and it makes great sense like I mean it's good sense that that's gonna help me heal, it helps them deal with the situation because maybe there's something that they've gone through similar that they wish they had the help or something that maybe that that loved one like pushed off onto them that they now do from that point on and they wanna share that with you like in time that that person has changed their life and just those experiences have helped me through so much adversity and it really makes it easier to throw the covers off and get out of bed and put your boots on and go to work, which is our grandfather's generation, right? Like, mm -hmm. pull your boots on, let's go. But there's something to that as well, listening to those people and, and, and utilizing those resources, I think it really helps. And it helps you be that person because if you do right most of the time, and, and I've screwed up and I've learned lessons from screwing up and I've apologized, and there's people that I haven't apologized to that I wish I had, but I think when you do things right and you feel like, you do the best that you can every day, that, that comes back on you tenfold when you have a moment of need because it becomes a year of need, it becomes a lifetime of need and just knowing that my kids see that, like hey, these people don't even know us and they are dropping stuff at our house mm -hmm. just to make us feel good. Like those thoughtful things are what, like you said, your gut, your intuition is telling you to do it, just get up and do it, like mm -hmm. make that difference. And if it didn't matter to them, nobody's gonna yell at you for it. You're going to feel good, they're going to feel better, and you're going to move on. So just recognizing what your, what your abilities are and what, what, what you're able to do. So I think, I that's think helped me a ton. 
I think there are tools out there too, and Judith, I'm sure you can talk about this much better than I can, but just like learning kind of what I said earlier is learning to deal with the small problems to build up to being able to deal with the bigger problems. And mm -hmm. something that I'm working on right now is just um, working through what's called the Wim Hof method. And I'm learning how to deal with, with cold um, and what that does for my body. But I, I started with 10 seconds of cold shower and that was all I could do. But then over time, I've been able to build up to where now I can do a minute, a minute and a half in a cold shower, you know, and just kind of see where that takes me. But um, I think that's very similar when it comes to mental resiliency. I think it's the same thing. You just, you start somewhere small mm -hmm. and then you kind of build upon that. Well, yeah, and I, like a theme between what Brian said and what you're saying is this idea that one, resiliency takes effort. Right, because it also goes back to the conversation we had a long time ago, innate or learned. As soon as we take like innate off the plate, <laughs> uh, then you have to go with this idea that it's learned. And if something is learned, it takes effort and it takes investment. Because um, I think some of us sometimes go through our lives and we're like, well, you know, when that bad thing happens, I'm just gonna power through it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not necessarily the way it works. I've seen it happen, but a much, better approach uh, is to say, I'm going to build my resiliency. I'm going to put effort into this because one day I may really need to make a huge withdrawal from my resiliency bank, if you will. Yeah. And I think it's hard for us to put effort into it because we don't always see the payoff of doing it. You can see the payoff, like you are making those um, you know, uh, increases in time, mm -hmm. small amounts of time um, over you know, a period of time to say, oh yeah, I can, I can last longer in here. Mm -hmm. So you have this direct measurable way to say, I've made progress on this. It's harder to do that for resiliency. And because of that, we tend to back off of it when it gets too nebulous and too gray. And the thing is, I, I think you need to kind of set some goals for yourself. I think there might be ways that we can measure our own resiliency, even when we're not in the face of an adversity. Mm -hmm. So what am I doing? Like even in, you know, one particular moment, even if it's not particularly challenging, it's, it's being able to just introspect just that little bit. Just say, okay, what am I thinking, feeling, and how am I behaving, and is this who I want to be? Sometimes it's just as easy as a quick check-in um, so that you're constantly, I don't know, keeping yourself aligned, uh, you know, chiropractically mm -hmm. so, <laughs> you yeah. know, kind yeah. of aligned. In your life. And you said the, the bank, you know, and, and it immediately brought me back to marriage and relationship things where it's like, are you doing mm -hmm. things for your, for your right. partner that's kind of filling their cup or, you know, right. um, you know putting, putting something in that bank for them? And I never put that together with the resiliency mm -hmm. thing. It's like, am I doing things to fill my own resiliency cup or fill my own resiliency bank, knowing that there's going to be a time where I'm going to have to, you know, pull a withdrawal from that right. and then kind of looking at the timing of all that and go, that was a really great time to work on these kind of things. So, you know, maybe that's another way that we can work on building, you know, have a, have a plan to build resiliency. Yeah, and I'm not sure this metaphor works because uh, your retirement is different from my retirement mm -hmm. as a civilian, um, but resiliency is like your retirement plan in some ways. I don't mean you're gonna use it in retirement, but it's this idea that I'm putting stuff away for a future where I don't know what I'll need and I don't see a direct reward of it um, right away in my life. Yeah. 
And so resiliency to me is a little bit like building for that future mm -hmm. um, while you're also maintaining your, your present. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's like your flex spending account, right? Yeah. <laughs> Come yeah. December, you gotta Absolutely. buy a bunch of band-aids and sunscreen and you just give it out. <laughs> so when your bank's full, you just start giving it out to people, right? Like <laughs> you know, it, my kids have had, I wouldn't say issues, but they're having a difficult time with online learning. Mm -hmm. They miss their friends, they miss the social part, they miss the human relationship, which I know is odd to say with you know our technological generations, right? The relationships are all through the phone. Well. We don't give our kids phones till they're in high school, right? So they have to build some sort of human relationship. <laughs> Social skills. Yeah, and so now they're really struggling with it, right? Because they don't have that, that human contact. Um, so again, me trying to put it on the simplest terms to my kids, it's like you can be resilient, but you need to focus on what you can control. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, you can't control your school. <coughs> There's nothing you can do about that, but you can control your effort in school and you know, building the organizational skills to be good at what you're faced with right now. Mm -hmm. But you can't necessarily control the things around. There's absolutely nothing you can do about COVID. There's absolutely nothing you can do about the state of politics. There's absolutely nothing that you, you can do about the most, most of this world, but you can't control yourself and how you react to it. And so we've kind of created this mantra, just win the day. Don't worry about tomorrow, just win today. And if you lose today, you win tomorrow. And just keep going one day at a time and win the day. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's helped them a lot, you know, because when they're storming the Capitol building and all that stuff, and this isn't a political statement, you know, we're watching all this on TV and then we drive to hockey practice. And I looked at my son who's, you know, 12, 13 years old. And I said, what are you doing right now? And he said, well, I'm, I'm going to hockey practice. And I said, with all the things that you just saw on the news, you're still just going to hockey practice. It's still something that you're doing. It hasn't affected your world that much. Now, I'm not saying don't be aware of those things, but also be aware of your relationship to those things. Mm -hmm. Like he has no idea there was riots in downtown Colorado Springs. It just didn't affect his life, right? And so don't get <laughs> emotionally distraught over things that you can't control, but manage those things you can, like going to hockey practice and practicing as hard as you can and doing the best you can at whatever particular task you've set your mind to. Yeah. So win the day has been something, and I think that's the little things that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we have to be even better at that nowadays with social media and the access to information that we have, you know. Um, I mean, we have so much information fed to us, you know, through, you know, Facebook and Instagram and news. And, and, and I think looking at yourself and going, okay, what, what does this mean to me? How do I need to react to this? What can I do about this? Oh, really, there's nothing. You know, there's nothing that I can do about it. And for me, I know that when I am able to get to that place, which is very hard, you know, when I'm able to get to that place, it does make my life a lot easier. Um, but these are things that I never talked about at a, at a young age or never learned. And, you know, I think it's great when we, when we have these things now and we share them with our kids. And just all we're doing is just putting a, you know, kind of planting a seed so that later on, later on down the road, 
maybe that's the generation that's gonna, you know, kind of take this to the next level from where we're at. I mean, I could see where you could get very overwhelmed about the year 2020. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, you experienced loss. My cousin, he lost his, his grandfather, his father, his father-in-law, and his mother-in-law had a brain aneurysm all in 2020, plus his whole family got COVID. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, man, if you, he can push through, anybody can push through. And, and, he, and he really did it by, you know, I can't, I can't control all that stuff. Mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's nothing I could have done any different to, to impact the outcome of that, and I just have to win the day. Right, and I think control is uh, a really important issue in resiliency. It is being able to say, I can control this, but I can't control that. And wanting to <laughs> have control over something actually isn't having control over something. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Sure. Um, and what we want to do is accept what we really can't control or the scope of control we have on it, right? Yes. You know, can we <laughs> can we influence politics at a national level? No, but we do still have the exercise or the... Uh, um, the ability to vote and do the other things we can, but that is the limited role that we do have mm -hmm. um, in certain situations. So it's being able to accept what you can't control and take ownership of the things that you can. And it's okay to not have control over everything. And I know we talked about this before, but COVID was a particularly challenging year because we did lose control over things we thought we would have control over. It's, it's hard for us, like when we did have control over it and it was taken away from us, I think that's harder for us to accept than um, things that we've never really had control over and, and letting go of some of those things. So I think mm -hmm. it was just particularly challenging for us this past year mm -hmm. under, around that issue of control. Mm -hmm. like sure, your, your kids used to have that control. Well, I'm gonna go sure. to school and like, you know, right. talk to my friends in the hallway and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and all those things I want to do and have fun uh, when I'm at school and they don't have control over that now and so they can sit in their room and they can be like oh I hate this this yeah. isn't fair da, 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 da. yeah you're right <laughs> you should hate this it isn't fair but what are we gonna do at this point are we just gonna sit here and you know kind of mm -hmm. let this dictate how we're gonna be in this moment or are we gonna dictate how we're gonna be in this moment mm -hmm. and your approach is that well like let's win <laughs> let's mm -hmm. live to fight another day almost sure so in some cases right yeah. So yeah, i think I, that's important yeah when i look when i look back at this year in particular you know COVID is it is what it is and we're working through it but my my own issue i had my own marital issue this year and the hardest part about that whole thing is that marital problem wasn't my choice and i didn't have mm -hmm. any control over it and things didn't start getting better until I just kind of gave into that and went, okay, I have no control over this and I just have to let things be and I have to be here in the moment and be present, you know, in my relationship and in my marriage and, and in my house. And I feel like that's when things started turning and getting better, when I just kind of gave up that control, when I said, okay, I don't need to. The harder, the harder that I tried to control it, the worse things got. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that that control plays a really huge part in, you know, how we deal with, how we deal with stress and how we manage things and getting to that point of going, it's okay. Like, I don't have control of this and it's okay. Right. And I, I think, I don't want to underestimate how difficult it is to say you don't have control over something you want control over. It's hard. It's really hard. Uh, but 
<laughs> you know, it goes back to that vulnerability. You kind of have to be vulnerable to say, I don't have control over it and I just need to accept it. So I think all these things that we're talking about are very intertwined, at least in my brain, they are. Sure, yeah. I think it, uh, it's hard though not to fight when you're in that sure. minute because the stuff that lands me in an office like yours are the scenes that I didn't have control over and the calls that have, like when we carry trauma with us, not debilitating trauma, but any trauma with us, it's mostly built out of those moments where you lost some sort of control of your environment, especially from a firefighter's perspective. Like when we look back at our bad, bad calls that have affected one or a group of people, it comes down to like, I was prepared, I had the tools and I couldn't use them. And everything I did didn't work and everything started spinning out of control. So when we have a year like this, my instinct is to fight it and to start looking for ways that I can control, which only, it's self-defeating, a lot of that is for sure. But I think there's a time where you just have to kind of ride that wave out and go, okay, I, I literally have to submit like you were just saying to this, but it's hard for your brain to, to flip over because we've been fighting that for 21 years, 20 years, how many years? I mean, we've been fighting this our whole career where we're like, yeah, that call screwed me up because I lost all control. My emotions, my mental fortitude, my logic brain turned off, my right and left brain started firing like crazy. I got pissed at everybody. I started, you know, like that cycle happens. And when you recognize it, you start getting real defensive and start fighting against that, which is, it's, it's hard to not do that. Well, and I think, you know, some of the things that come to mind for me are just the, your inner warrior, right? I actually think it's totally okay for your inner warrior to say, I'm fighting for this and I'm going to fight until I reach a certain point where either I accomplish what I set out to do or I'm not getting any more return on my, my investment in fighting. Does that make sense? So I don't mm -hmm. feel like we should just be like, oh, we're not in control of that and kind of adopt this victim mentality. Sure. Um, it is fight but at some point when you're fighting isn't really helping you gain anything and you're just spinning your wheels and you're wasting a lot of emotional energy that's the point at which you need to say I don't have control I did everything I could to kind of take control of the situation and I'm not getting back anything at this point that's when your inner warrior you just thank them and you yeah. say okay I just need you to lay down your sword because we may have lost this battle but there's going to be one tomorrow and I need you well rested yeah and so we need to be ready and, um, you know, and I also think of that phrase, you know, they define insanity as you know, doing the same yes. thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, sometimes I think our inner warrior can kind of get caught in that loop They're of insanity, insane. right? Yeah. And yeah. so there's They're wisdom insane. in knowing how far can I take this and when, when is the right moment to stop. Yeah. But when you stop and you admit that something's not in your control, I also believe it doesn't mean you're a victim. But that's what we think. We mm -hmm. think as soon as we say we don't have control over something, now I'm a victim and I have no power. And, and I feel like we need to get out of that extreme uh, and change our mental stance in those situations to say, well, I do have some control and it's going back to the things you can control that are important <coughs> to you. They're not, they're not silly things. They are things that are important to you yeah. that you're going to take control over. But things that you really don't, you just need to be like, okay, I'm putting down the sword. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right, one more question. We're already kicking two hours here. So, um, why is it valuable for organizations to have resilient people, and what is it can the organizations do to help promote that or, or ensure that? 
Is it question. too obvious to say that if you have resilient people, you're going to have those people for a while, and I feel like you can better serve your mission yeah, sure. if you just exhaust your people and you burn them out? Um, who, who's there to serve the mission? I don't know. It seems kind of obvious to mm -hmm. me. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I, the other the side of it that I look at is just what our world is from day to day. We don't know. You know, I mean, we come in and, and we're responding to calls. We have no idea what the day is going to look like. I mean, we can have a plan, but it's all going to fall apart. And so for, I think, for us in our profession, you know, resiliency plays a huge role in this because we don't, you know, come to work every day and do the, the same thing, you know, over mm -hmm. and over again. And, um, you know, I think for most of us, that's exciting. You know, that's why we do this. It's like, I don't want to, you know, do the same thing every single day. But when we want to do this for 30 years, you know, or a 20-year, 30-year career, then I think it's very important for fire departments, for CSFD, for us to have a plan and learn about resiliency and practice it and, and talk about it. Yeah, I was thinking, I, I was attending a talk, it was actually for law enforcement, but it kind of applies to fire as well. It's like, you know, you don't, you don't get the call you want when you want. You get the call that happens when it happens, you yeah. know what I mean? And so being able to respond uh, effectively, psychologically, not just, you know, tactically um, to it is really important. You just, I don't know how you can keep, <laughs> I don't know, keep individuals going if you don't address that component of it. I think having good examples of, of resilient people and having good examples of how to handle situations and you know, we, we've we've developed a culture where we we kind of are always looking upward at at the leadership and at the 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 informal leaders in the station and those people that are like taking the ball and running with it. And we look at them and go, God, how come they always get the ball? Like, how are they always running? How are they? Those are the people that we learn a lot from about about being resilient. I think it's a value to our companies. It's a value to us to recognize when somebody's not being so resilient. But I also think that. In order to get to where we all are today, we went through a very rigorous process that kind of vetted somebody who's willing to just give it up and walk away or just say, you know what, that was tough, but I'm gonna push through. That test sucked. I gotta do better on the next one. That oral board was awful. I gotta learn more and do it next year. And I think we've, we've kind of selected those people to come into the organization from the ground up um, but they're also selected by, by people that have had good examples of that as well to know what to expect and know what, you know, what's, what type of person you're looking for. And, and not everybody fits that bill all the time, but you prepare for your interviews and you prepare for in the job 20 years later, your officer interviews and your chief interviews. And like we, we've ingrained that in our society, which is helpful because we don't know what's gonna come next time that door pops open. We don't know what's gonna be out there, so we have to be a lot more reactive to situations. And um, to foster that within our fire stations is, is to, you know, to help each other through the process and to recognize when somebody is, is not able to pick up those pieces so well and, and help them do that, not just beat them down because they can't do it. But. I don't feel like I've had a tough career of people beating me down. I don't feel like, 
you know, I just got to keep pushing on and it's just a job. I still feel like this is a great place that I can work with all my friends, <laughs> you know, and uh, it doesn't matter where those friends or what shift those friends are on. We still have them everywhere. And um, we all in the back of our heads go, oh, cool. I get to work with that person today or I get to see that person today or you just have opportunities that are there and, and, and watch people go through it. It's just like when you're, you know, your dad hits his thumb with a hammer. Does he come and smack you in the face with it? Or does he run <laughs> off in the backyard and go, give me a minute? And he leaves. <laughs> and he comes back and he's like, better. Like, okay, hit thumb with hammer, go outside, scream, come back. Like, you know, you learn that stuff in the environment that you're in. So I think we can create that environment within our fire service of, okay, this sucks. What just happened is bad. We need to handle it. Not just sweep it under a rug and not just say it's okay, it happens to everybody. We can go, yeah, this happened. Let's acknowledge it. Let's see how we feel about it and let's move forward and, and not get stuck. We can help people not get stuck. We can personally mm -hmm. not get stuck, whether we're in the station or what capacity. So. Yeah, and I think culture plays a part in it, but I, mm -hmm. I think it needs to be a multifaceted approach yeah. to building resiliency in the organization. I, it needs to be at all levels. True. Um, and, and that might mean different things at different levels. You know, I know that's one of the things that Jamie and I think about a lot is what does it mean to help different parts of the organization to be resilient? Because the more, um, you know, uh, I want to use a big word, but I'm trying to avoid that. The, the more present it is throughout the organization, like everywhere you turn, um, the more helpful it's going to be for people. You'll, you'll change culture, but you'll also be providing the skills, right? The peer support team wants to provide one-on-one -on -one assistance with building resiliency. Mm -hmm. um, as the staff psychologist, I think about what is the, you know, programming, the education, the training I can provide to the organization to encourage resiliency and to teach resiliency. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something that we have to think about, and I think it's something we have to think about, not secondary, everything else we do sure. I think it needs to be more ingrained in our day-to-day -day kind of thought process and operations but I get that that might be a little bit of a biased view <laughs> you know. by building resiliency are we also building equanimity with our with our groups <laughs> you just had to throw that <laughs> word out there you said you. we were going to use big words I, I wanted to use ubiquitous but I was like oh they're going to make fun of me for that <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure what word I just said so. <laughs> just wanted to so leave some wine so how are we doing as an organization I don't my world is pretty small it's you know I, I, I from this perspective from a resilience perspective I I know what we do as an organization and I you know I'm, I'm better versed at say wildland tactics on a national level so uh, on an industry-wide level how are we doing as an organization in helping our folks build resiliency well, I have two perspectives on it one is my own time here ha has allowed me to see the change and a very positive change in the direction of it's kind of okay to reach out for help when it comes to behavioral health issues. I've seen changes in even how we handle um, people who are uh, having job performance issues that might be related to a behavioral health issue. And that, I can't tell you how good that feels to me. Mm -hmm. That is stunning, the, the change that I've seen in our department around that thing, uh, around those types of issues, um, you know, and I, I don't know how to compare it nationally, but I do work with a lot of different agencies. And although I really admire every agency I'm working with, because again, it depends on where your starting point is and, mm -hmm. and how long you've had, how much progress you can make. But I do feel like the, the decade that I've been here, you know, we are 
um, able to dedicate more resources to things or able to have these types of conversations, um, which really helps us be, I think, ahead of some other departments I, I either work with or I just know about, in, at least in this state. I don't know about nationally. So, I don't know, I'm so proud uh, of this department in that regard. At the same time, I say that my, my, my brain also goes, but there's more work to do, right? So we're not done. Um, but the amount of change I've seen is uh, really uh, rewarding for me to see. Uh, but it does, it, but that drives me to want to just do more, I guess. In some ways, it like lights that fire, oh, not to use that kind of pun in this <laughs> environment, but I mean, it really lights that fire under me to keep me going, to, to fuel me, to mm -hmm. have me want to do more. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> all right i think we should wrap it up there it's been a good conversation thank you to judith thank you to brian thank you guys. josh is my normal sidekick so i won't <laughs> thank him but thank you guys for coming thank you for for opening up and having this conversation uh, a lot of what we're trying to do is, is start conversation by just having one um, we're not trying to solve a bunch of problems but you know maybe in the recognition that um that there are issues out there and there there are ways to talk about it and we can sit around the kitchen table and have all our best discussions um, we can all become better as an organization so thank you all for coming sure, i really appreciated hearing everyone's thoughts on this topic and i appreciate the invite so thanks absolutely ditto thank you <laughs> i appreciate right. being here i feel the same yeah thanks thanks guys this is a good uh good group good conversation and you know, really, I just, Brian, I do want to point out you coming in here, like as we talk about resiliency, you just coming in here and doing this right now at this point in your career, I look to that and I'm like, that's resiliency. So thanks for, thanks for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, everybody, that concludes episode one, part two of The Kitchen Table. Uh, we hope you found that worthwhile. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, we're going to start doing these podcasts on a, on a regular basis. We've, in fact, we're doing three more in the next couple weeks, so we'll get those to you uh, as soon as possible, available on all major platforms, so you can listen to them on the ride home. You can recommend them to your friends. Um, they'll also be available on Vimeo uh, through Target Solutions. We'll make an assignment for that, so if you want to watch us sit here at the kitchen table, you have that available to you as well. Um, now we're going to conclude this episode with another uh, Meet CSFD. Uh, this time we have Lieutenant Brian Kurtz kind of telling his story and his journey on how he got to the fire department. Yep, absolutely. And one more thing, just if you guys are having these conversations at the kitchen table, please, and they're good ones and you want the, you know, the job to hear them, we can all learn from them, give us a call and let us know and we'd be happy to get out to the station and, and have these with you. So with that, here comes Brian Kurtz. Sounds good. We'll see you all next week. Thank you. Uh, I'm Brian Kurtz. Um, I started with CSFD back in 2004, class of one, or the first class in 2004, 01. Um, been in the fire service five years or six years before that, one or two years as a volunteer, and then five years as paid at uh, Cimarron Hills Fire Department. And um, when I was there, just had a kind of a yearning to get back across the street. We'd always meet on powers, and I'd see a different level of professionalism and a different level of kind of spirit and a different, it was just different when you worked for a smaller department that was uh, governed by a board of directors and your hands were kind of tied with some other things back in that time. So um, I really just aspired to come here and uh, be part of the CSFD. So I tested three or four, maybe five times and got my ticket to get in. So um, 
just tried to work hard every day I'm here. Um, have a lot of great influences and mentors through the job. I looked through the room and worked with everybody in the room in some capacity, either as a report or a peer or helping with driver's tests that I'm not even a driver with or, you know, <laughs> brand new lieutenant. And I did come up with a funny story as I just thought of that about you. Um, <laughs> well, anyhow, there's probably two in there of that. But um, just, you know, hit a couple programs throughout the the journey in CSFD with the hazmat program at first and then high angle rescue and I was roving as a paramedic and then uh, was in the heavy rescue program for the last five years. So um, looking to promote in the next 20 some days. So yeah. um, thanks to everybody that helped me along that path because this is a career that you, you're not alone and there's lots of people that want to help when you ask for help. So I'm, I'm very so appreciative you're a Colorado that. Springs kid. Yes, born and raised. Um, did, did you find native. the fire service or did the fire service find you? You know, the fire service kind of found me. I worked in um, the construction field since I was like 14, 15 years old. Um, and in my mid-20s, just was kind of looking for something different. Uh, just the, the construction field kind of gave me a, a lot of a lot of pains as I started looking at, at people that were not retiring or people that were like getting you know pushed around from job to job or getting you know from contractor to contractor they kind of just were there was just some instability at the time that I was in it I loved doing it um, I was in the military uh, in the construction battalion in the Navy so I was really working hand-in-hand hand with that really well um, but there was just some uncertainty with the contractor business in Colorado Springs at the time and kind of got my adult brain thinking forward of something that might have a little bit more longevity and more of that you know, I, I was making money quickly, but I'm like, that money can run out really quick and it can dry up in the winter time. So we're doing inside jobs in the winter and working for a contractor that, um, to be frank, was just, he was really good at taking care of his family. And if you weren't part of his direct last name, then it, it kind of, he took care of you until he didn't. And then mm -hmm. I saw people kind of leave their organization and thought to myself, it was probably time for a career change. So oddly enough, I was on a camping trip and, uh, <laughs> One of the uh, people that was there, her dad is a fire chief at another department, and she said, you ought to look into being a firefighter. And so, like the next week, I walked into Cimarron Hills and asked them if they have any volunteer positions, and that just kind of steamrolled from there. And the more I did, the more I wanted to do. And um, while working for the general contractor, I went through um, EMT school. Um, the department paid for that, and as I started working the medical side of that, and really just providing for other people besides myself, like on your daily engine and you, you walk out there and you, you provide for the citizens and just having that that spirit of accomplishment other than just looking at something that you've built, you have that spirit of accomplishment of somebody that you helped or taking that extra step with customer service and things like that really just forged the way for me to, to do better in that occupation. So, um, and then I started looking at the long-term benefit plans and healthcare plans and good stuff for my family and mm -hmm. um, the community that we are in with 600 you know city employees that we're alongside of and then thousands more with the PD and stuff like that it just really really just took to it and wanted to stay in it so now it's hard to get out so yeah. it's like <laughs> so the mafia right? I'm not really looking for a way out but <laughs> once you're in, um, you're in for yeah life. yeah yeah which I like that because you really strive to, and I think Colorado Springs has offered me the opportunity to to kind of use my attention deficit and you know walk through different things when you get 
kind of you know stale with something you take on a new challenge whether the job puts you there or you pick it and put yourself there um, you just rise to those challenges and and try and excel at all those things and I feel like the people around me have made me successful by doing that so beautiful so that's how I got here that's it well, yeah it's a good journey yeah it's a pretty neat journey it's not over yet so